You are listening to the Catholic Thinkers Podcast, a free treasury of instruction in the Catholic intellectual tradition. If you enjoy this lecture, please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate. Hello, my name is Russell Hittinger. I am the William K. Warren Chair of Catholic Studies at the University of Tulsa where I am also a research professor of law. This course on Catholic social doctrine will consist of four written lessons. The first lesson covers the emergence of Catholic social doctrine in the 19th century, particularly during the pontificate of Pope Leo XIII, who wrote some 110 encyclicals and other teaching letters. This was quite an accomplishment for a man who was 68 years old at the time of his election in 1878. Your second written lesson asks two questions. First, what does the word social add to the word doctrine? Second, why is social doctrine placed under moral theology? Then, in this second lesson, we can turn to the compendium of the social doctrine of the church issued in 2004 by the Pontifical Council for Justice and Peace. It maintains that there are four basic principles which run almost like a Bach feud throughout Catholic social doctrine. Dignity of the individual, solidarity, subsidiarity, and common good. In lesson two, we will cover the first two. Its main concern is how individual dignity includes memberships in societies. The third written lesson will take up the second two principles, subsidiarity and the common good. The fourth written lesson will deal with the idea of social justice. But just now, my lecture will cover some of the important points in lessons two and three. Preliminary note, I should bring to your attention that the names and dates of the popes and of the Roman teaching documents as well as a bibliography of secondary literature are all included in the written lessons. Pope Pius XI, who's Pope from 1922 until 1939, was the first Pope to speak of social doctrine as a unified body of teachings, which developed by way of clarity and application. In Quadragesimo Anno, 1931, Pius claimed that he had inherited a doctrine handed on from the time of Leo XIII. And by any measure, it's a prodigious tradition. Beginning in 1878 with the election of Leo, popes have issued more than 250 encyclicals and other teaching letters. About half are related broadly to issues of social thought and doctrine. Since the time of the Second Vatican Council, this new doctrinal specialty is placed under moral theology. Moral philosophy and moral theology overlap insofar as they study the right ordering of human actions to ends. All moral doctrine, therefore, is based upon the two great commandments, love of God and love of neighbor. Accordingly, Catholic social doctrine under moral theology is especially interested in the virtues of justice and charity. Perhaps the first and most obvious question is this. What does this word social add to the word moral? The short answer 
is that being right with God and one's neighbor includes membership in societies which themselves need to be rightly ordered both within and one to the others. And even our individual actions, which might be taken as merely self-regarding, that is, actions properly undertaking for one's own good, are nevertheless orderable to a community. As St. Thomas Aquinas said, a man's good or evil actions, although not immediately ordained to the good or evil of another, are nevertheless ordained to the good or evil of another, that is, the community." Unquote. So we can speak of being right, not only with one's neighbors as singular persons, one by one, but also being rightly ordered too, and rightly ordered within communities. At least for a start, this gives us some traction in understanding how the term social is related to a doctrine that comes under moral theology. This doctrine teaches the principles of being rightly ordered to our neighbors as individuals, being rightly ordered as a member of a social whole, and the various ways societies are rightly ordered one to the other. Moreover, we have to appreciate that groups are themselves moral agents and patients. That is, they can harm and be harmed in the moral sense of the term. The doctrinal theologian, therefore, must study what the authoritative sources, scripture, councils, teachings of the ordinary magisterium, tell us about the nature and proper actions of social entities. This, of course, encompasses a very wide array of social phenomena, churches, polities, families, economic organizations, only to mention a few of the most prominent. The project of the doctrinal theologian in issues related to the social sphere is also complex because of the historical nature of the subject matter. It's one thing to understand the principles drawn from theology and philosophy. It's quite another thing to understand concrete social realities. In his Christmas message of 1955, Pope Pius XII pointed out that although the principles of social order are natural, the social realities themselves change over time with social developments." Unquote. Some changes are brought about by historical forces, which cannot be attributed directly to anyone's decision or policy. Other developments, however, arise from within societies as they themselves bring about new ways of molding and forming the order of the common good. Families, associations, markets, political constitutions, and the law of nations are all dynamic. Whereas in doctrinal theology proper, the revealed data are unfolded with more clarity and richness as the church reflects upon the deposit of faith. We recall it took nearly four centuries of councils to get properly formulated the person and nature of Christ. But in social doctrine, the teachings also include applications of principles to the contingencies of societies. And these applications have to change somewhat as the facts change. Of course, they never change absolutely, but they certainly change by way of emphasis. Now, on particular issues of social doctrine, 
labor unions, the environment, political parties, war and peace, and a myriad of other things, you should consult the compendium of the social doctrine of the church, which gathers together the major magisterial pronouncements under various topical headings. Along with other works included in our bibliography, it will help you to understand, for example, why the problem of Catholic vocational societies in the 19th century was somewhat different than the issue of labor unions in the early 20th century, and why, for example, issues of Catholic political parties, democracy, and the proper use of medical technology change over time. In this lecture, however, our job is to consider the underlying principles of Catholic social doctrine, the things that don't change. And once again, I want to take as our guide the compendium, which I said lists four basic principles, the dignity of the human person, solidarity, subsidiarity, and common good. While all four of these principles include the dignity of the human person, you will note that the last three are specifically and irreducibly social. The dignity of the human person cannot be interpreted on the premise of what some people call methodological individualism, namely, that social unities and relations among members of societies can be reduced to non-social properties of these members or just composites thereof. Let me now turn to individual, individuality and solidarity. Margaret Thatcher famously said that there is, quote, no such thing as society. There are only individual men and women, and there are families. It was a curious remark, for she includes the family, which is a prime candidate for what we would count as a society. Probably, she was complaining about some undifferentiated notion of society with a capital S, the organs of which are the welfare state. Why this, in turn, could not count as a society under the category of polity is hard to say without knowing Lady Thatcher's mind. But let's suppose that Lady Thatcher wished to make a more philosophically subtle point. For it is surely correct that groups like families, polities, clubs, teams, and colleges do not possess the unity of an individual substance. The two creation myths of Genesis clearly distinguish between the one flesh unity of Adam and Eve, the marriage of Adam and Eve, and the antecedent sequence of natural kinds. Indeed, sacred scripture seems to confirm common sense and untutored observation. Marriage does not have a nature in the same sense as a plant, a bird, or even a human being. When two or more people are constituted in a society, there is not produced a second or third natural kind. As for who are the real persons, they are individuals of a rational nature who are also members of societies that constitute something more than the sum of their parts. Thomas Aquinas notes in his treatise on justice in the Summa Theologiae that justice regards actions, and actions belong to supposites and totalities that is, to individual persons of a rational nature and to groups. In sum, justice concerns individual persons, and then from a different point of view, individual persons as members of a unity of order that transcends the sum of the parts. 
The key is this double consideration of personal agency. We can consider the agent first and properly as an individual person, or what was called an hypostasis or first substance. Our moral evaluations track the intentions and actions of that singular person who enjoys the unity of a substance. But from another point of view, we can consider the same agent insofar as he or she is a member of a society. And there are many Latin names for a society. Of course, societas, persona moralis, corpus mysticum, collegium, universitas, communitas. In the, in the legal and theological world formed by Latin culture, these and other such terms are sometimes used as terms of art, especially in law. More often, they're used interchangeably, simply to denote a group whose agency depends upon what is called the form of order. And here, once again, we must turn to Thomas Aquinas. A society possesses what Thomas called unity of order. Here I quote, it must be known that the whole which a political group or the family constitutes has only unity of order, for it is not something absolutely one. A part of this whole, therefore, can have an operation that is not the operation of the whole, as a soldier in an army has an activity that does not belong to the entire army. However, this whole has an operation that is not proper to the parts, but to the whole. Pause. It's the army that wins the victory, but it's the individual soldier who scouts over the hill. This unity of order is distinguished, first, from the unity of substance, and second, from a merely juxtapositional unity. And here we quote Thomas again. Now, one way in which one comes from many is the way of order alone. So, from many houses, a city comes to be, or from many soldiers, an army. Another way is that of order and composition. So, a house comes to be when they join together its parts and walls. But neither of these two ways fit the constitution of one nature from a plurality. For things whose form of order or juxtaposition are not natural things, the result is that their unity cannot be called a unity of nature." Unquote. Therefore, in a unity of order, each member possesses what is individually proper to himself, namely certain operations and actions that are not reducible to the commonality and which are never dissolved or canceled by membership in a group. At the same time, a society is not a mere juxtaposition of things. It's a real unity transcending the aggregation of its members. This notion of a unity of order which was drawn from Aristotle and St. Thomas Aquinas, began to be used over and over again by the social magisterium beginning with Leo XIII. And I believe this category just brings into view certain kinds of facts available to our common sense. That individuals in a queue waiting for a bus are the parts, not the members of a queue, and they are members not the mere parts of St. Rita's parish. To simply be in a line waiting for a bus 
That kind of unity is merely a unity of juxtaposition or aggregation. But being members of St. Rita's Parish is a unity of order. For France, the Catholic Church, the local labor union, or St. Rita's Parish, change of constituents can sustain rather than destroy the identity of the group. So, wherever there are plural rational agents aiming at common ends through united action, and where their unity is one of the intrinsic goods being aimed at, we have a society, something distinct in dignity. To use once again the traditional terminology, the group is said to have an extrinsic common good, victory for the army, or peace for the city, and an intrinsic common good, that is the common good of their own action, the form, the unity of their action. Groups differ quite dramatically in terms of their respective ends and their forms of unity. A faculty, for example, aims to advance learning and to educate students, and they do it together by common deliberation. But unlike a marriage, the intrinsic unity of a college faculty does not depend upon conjugal relations. Traditionally, a matrimonial society has only one form, a man and a woman, who share life unto perpetuity as a whole through a one-flesh act of sexual unity. For its part, a state or a polity can have plural forms, rule by one, rule by a few, rule by many, or some combination of those. It can consist of different proportions of men, women, and children. Clearly, societies are quite different in their respective ends and modes of unity. Here now is a key principle. Social form is an intrinsic common good which cannot be distributed or cashed out. The common good of a society never exists as a mere private good. And therefore, when someone exits a marriage or a polity, he or she cannot take away his private share. Even in our confused legal cultures today, courts understand perfectly well that they can divide and distribute the external properties, but not the marriage itself. One cannot get a divorce and take away 50, 40, 30, or even 1% of the marriage. It's simply not a divisible thing. The matrimonial society, therefore, cannot be redistributed. It can only be dissolved or annulled. Any group will hold itself out to the rest of the world as something distinct in dignity, possessing rights and responsibilities. Take, for example, the American Declaration of Independence. Quote, we, therefore, the representatives of the United States of America, in general Congress assembled, appealing to the supreme judge of the world for the rectitude of our intentions, do, in the name and the authority of the good people of these colonies, solemnly publish and decree that these united colonies are and of right ought to be free and independent states." Unquote. They have simply put themselves out to the rest of the world as a social entity, not a mere juxtaposition of parts, but parts that 
of, of a whole, they don't hold themselves out to the world as though they were one, but rather as one. And other polities will not treat this new unity called the United States justly if they attempt to do business only with England, or perhaps only with Rhode Island. A new social unity has come into existence by the common action of its members, and it makes a moral claim on the rest of the world to have a locus of rights and responsibilities. But what was the form? What was the common form of this new social entity? Well, 11 years after the Declaration of Independence, this was made clear in the preamble of the Constitution. I quote, we, not me, not you, not them, we, the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union, establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, and secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity, do ordain and establish this Constitution of the United States of America." Unquote. And then what follows, in the Articles of the Constitution, this people adopted the form through which they would commonly pursue these common ends. Let's think back to Genesis. The six days of creation, the so-called hexameron, crowns creation not with another natural kind, not with another thing, much less with an aggregation of material forces in mere juxtaposition. Creation is crowned with a society, Adam and Eve. In Jewish and in Christian allegorical exegesis, this society was in turn the type of another society, Israel or the church. Indeed, it was Augustine in the Confessions who said, creation is for the sake of the church, that is, a social body. For his part, Thomas argued that God declared the unity of order on the sixth day very good because he wished, and here I quote, he wished to produce his works in likeness to himself so far as possible in order that they may be perfect and that he might be known through his works. Hence, that may he may be portrayed in his works, not only according to what he is in himself, but also as he acts upon others, he laid this natural law upon all things, that last things should be reduced and perfected by middle things, and middle things by the first." Unquote. In other words, we are made unto the image of God, not only because each individual person possesses the excellence of a rational nature, but also because we must cause good in others through ordered sets of relationships. Virtually all of the modern popes have highlighted this principle in social doctrine. In his first social encyclical against socialism, for example, Pope Leo XIII paraphrases Thomas's doctrine that God creates a social order of causes in order to, that these causes may imitate his own goodness. Here I quote from Pope Leo. For he who created and governs all things has, in his wise providence, appointed that the things that are lowest should attain their ends by those which are intermediate, and these again by the highest. 
Thus, as even in the kingdom of heaven, he has willed that the choirs of angels be distinct, some subject to others. And also in the church has instituted various orders and a diversity of offices, so that all are not apostles or doctors or pastors. So also he has appointed that there should be very various orders in civil society, differing in dignity, rights, power, whereby the state, like the church, should be one body consisting of many members, some nobler than others, but all necessary to one another and solicitous for the common good." Unquote. Key point, it's from this twofold imaging of God flows the dignity of the individual and the dignity of social orders. Notice that these two imagings are without rivalry precisely because of the recurring distinctions made by the popes between a unity of substance, that is the rational nature of an individual person, and a unity of order, that is a multiplicity of rational beings constituting a true society. What rightfully belongs to the individual person is not confused, destroyed, or assimilated when he is positioned and perfected within a social order. Otherwise, society would be a suicide pact. But let us return for a moment to a more mundane plane from which to survey the nature of a society. In his seminal essay on moral personality and legal personality, the British legal historian F.W. Maitland writes, here I quote, when a body of 20 or 2,000 or 200,000 men bind themselves together to act in a particular way for some common purpose, they create a body which by no fiction of law, but by the very nature of things, differs from the individuals of whom it is constituted. If the law allows men to form permanently organized groups, these groups will be, for common opinion, right and duty-bearing units. And if the lawgiver will not openly treat them as such, he will misrepresent, or as the French say, he will denature the facts. For the morality of common sense, a group is a person. It is a right and doing, duty-bearing unity." Unquote. And therefore, when individuals with a note of permanence engage in united action for a common purpose, there comes into existence a unity that transcends the sum of its parts. That is to say, there comes into existence a group person, a society, that requires the rest of us to treat it not only as a set of individuals, but as Maitland put it, an N plus one person. N for the number of individual persons who are members, and one person that's more than the sum of the members, that is the group itself. Of course, every society depends upon its individual persons. This is just what Aristotle and Thomas meant by a unity of order, inasmuch as the members are not reducible to the whole, as though they were accidents being reduced to an underlying substance. Groups are not ontologically basic in the order of substance. They are basic, however, in constituting a unity that excels the parts, the members, members who are themselves also wholes as natural persons. So what Maitland calls an N plus one unity means the group or society, and not just the individual members, should morally count. 
as the bearer of rights and responsibilities, a society can harm or be harmed in the moral sense of the term. We harm a society when we fail to recognize its common good and its agency as an N plus one person by refusing to give it its proper legal status. In such cases, we do something more than just harm the individuals or what privately belongs to the individuals. More precisely, we harm what those individuals as members hold in common. It's precisely in this context that we should interpret John Paul II's use of the term subjectivity of society, which is used in the encyclical Centesimus Annus. Quote, the social nature of man is not completely fulfilled in the state, but is realized in various intermediary groups, beginning with the family and including economic, social, political, and cultural groups, which stem from human nature itself and which have their own autonomy. This is what I have called subjectivity of society, which together with the subjectivity of the individual was canceled by real socialism." Unquote. Now, as we can gather from the Pope's remarks here, a society is something more than intersubjectivity. It's an intersubjectivity that constitutes a subject in its own right. This distinction between intersubjectivity and an intersubjectivity that becomes a subject in its own right is also drawn from ordinary experience. A number of individuals in a shopping mall certainly events intersubjectivity without pretending to constitute a society. Regarding this kind of phenomenon, the philosopher Thomas Hobbes speaks of a mere concourse of wills without any intention to constitute a union. We have a concourse of individual wills and in intersubjectivity, more or less spontaneously converging on similar objects. We see this every day in the marketplace of a city or at a sports event or at a theater or the opera. And this kind of intersubjectivity is not harmed. Rather, it is quite likely facilitated when we, when we refuse it the status of a society or a group. So here's another key principle. There are many kinds of intersubjectivity which have a social aspect but are not necessarily societies. As I said, audiences at sports events or operas, shoppers at the mall, even two or three men lifting together a rock out of the middle of the street, all of these manifest intersubjectivity and therefore have some social aspect. But there's no note of union or a permanence of common action or even no esteem for the common order as a good in itself. In making things common, Societies, therefore, are to be distinguished not only from spontaneous modes of intersubjectivity, but also from a more specific agreement of wills that's typical of what I'm going to call a partnership. In a partnership, two or more people deliberately and explicitly make a contract with respect to mutually agreeable ends while, at the same time, laying claim to their private shares and yields in a mere partnership, the work is traceable to the individual partners, but not to the partnership itself. Let's suppose I supply Honda Motors with automobile parts. I don't necessarily intend 
to constitute a society with Honda Motors. No corporate personality is aimed at. I do not send Christmas cards to American Honda, and American Honda does not send Christmas cards. Rather, it sends bills to me. The reciprocity between myself and Honda Motors has no aspects of permanence. It has no united action. And indeed, it requires no society whatsoever except incidentally, perhaps in breach of contract, in which case the partners have to repair to the courts of the political society. As the great Catholic philosopher Yves Simone once observed, mere partnership does not do anything to put an end to the solitude of the partners. Given my earlier example, it's sufficient that I deliver the parts, that Honda assemble the cars, and that various individuals write monthly checks for leasing the equipment. Therefore, a partnership corresponds more or less to what used to be called an universitas rerum, an organization of things. The word universitas means a variety turning toward one. And the universitas rerum is things being turned toward one, an organization of things. Each partner contributes and is entitled to yield for his private benefit precisely the parts that belong to him. Now, to be sure, there can be no organization of partnership without real persons doing their part. The essential point is it is not the persons, but rather the things that are being collected. Indeed, Pope Pius XII said, it would be wrong to think, quote, that every particular enterprise is a genuine society of persons, unquote. Now, what we are comparing and contrasting now is just different kinds of intersubjectivity. We just want to draw distinctions. This notion of intersubjectivity contains in potentia, potentially, spontaneous intersubjectivity, spontaneous in the sense that it's not being planned. Two, deliberate relations of commutation, exchange, and partnership. And three, collective intersubjectivities which have the property of being a subject. The Catholic tradition of social doctrine regards all of them as expressions of man's social nature. It must be emphasized that partnerships really do possess a social aspect. They require some common conversion of interests with respect to an end, even if that end terminates in private yields. Moreover, a partnership, somewhat like a society, can establish common utilities or a common pool of resources to be distributed back to the partners. While the pool is destined to division into private shares, the structure of it is not merely private. The mutual fund, for example, has the being of a partnership because it's chiefly about universitas rerum, an organization of things, but its common fund is something like a common utility. Now, in the order of justice, we harm a partnership when we prevent the partners from contributing to and extracting from what is properly theirs. It depends principally upon what's been called commutative justice. In a society, on the other hand, what the canonists always called an universitas personarum, the individuals are not parts or partners, 
so much as members who enjoy a common order in the manner of usufructories. That is, each is entitled to enjoy and use what is common, but not as his or her private part. In contrast to an organization of things, such as a common pool, a common good is an order or form of common action. And as I said before, a common good is not opposed to the individual, but rather to the merely private good. For its part, partnership is not opposed to a private good. Indeed, the whole point of organizing private goods, of pooling resources, is to enhance the private yield that each of us gets. There's nothing inherently suspect about partnerships. In fact, they're probably as old as society itself, but they should never be confused with a society having a true common good. Socialism often shows a confusion between social union and association of partners. The socialist will, say, will tend to say this. An economic corporation has something less than an indivisible common good. Indeed, the socialist might suspect that this is actually a false partnership. And therefore, the socialist will urge that partnerships be assimilated to true societies. The liberal individualist, on the other hand, might deem societies as confused partnerships. Right? The individualist might hold that social unions are just fictions they really should be reduced back to alliances or partnerships between individuals. Either way, the multifaceted nature of human soci sociability is being contracted and compressed either into real social subjects or into mere aggregations, which, however cooperative, lack social union. Such compressions must eventually run up against what we see every day, namely every day we witness a diverse spectrum of human intersubjectivity. We must allow all of them to exist. Spontaneous subjectivities, partnerships, true societies. Again, let us take that cue. There is a line of several people in front of a credit union. The individuals are part of the queue. They're partners in the credit union and they are members of St. Rita's Parish. It's only the latter that deserves the word society as in something more than a metaphysical sense, in something more than a metaphorical sense, excuse me. A society, as opposed to partners or just people in, in a juxtapositional relationship in a line, does not just aim at a common objective, it wants it brought about by united action. Think, for example, of a family, a faculty, a crew team, or an orchestra. In each case, the reason for action includes the, com the good of their common action. The achievement of a mutually agreeable result is not enough. To be sure, an orchestra aims to produce the music, just as the crew team aims to win the race. And for their part, married spouses aim to raise children and to send them into the wider world of societies. Yet for each of these groups, their respective corporate unity is one of the reasons for actions. An orchestra doesn't just produce the music, it produces it together. 
A crew team doesn't win or lose the race, it does it together. And therefore, in the case of society, unity is an intransitive good. Ordinarily, it survives the failure of the crew team to win the race. The crew team remains a crew team, even if it loses the race, but it will certainly fail to be a crew team if it doesn't do it together. This is why marriages can survive the failure to produce children, or a state can survive its failure to negotiate the treaty with another state. All true societies having an internal social union can survive having their common end thwarted, but they will never survive overlooking their internal mode of unity. On the other hand, partners, partnerships usually do not survive the failure of partners to secure the mutually agreeable ends for which the arrangement was constructed. In sum, we will find human sociability manifesting itself in a variety of ways. Spontaneous intersubjectivities, deliberate partnerships, and authentic societies. But the order of a society is something more perfect. For it not only has greater unity and durability, but most importantly, it has a common good that's intrinsically valuable to each of its members. And it's in this comment, this, it's in this context we can recall Cardinal Cajetan's famous dictum, mihi sed non propter me, for me, but not for my sake. Every member of a society, whether it's a crew team, or a marriage, or a faculty, or a church, or a polity, can always say, mihi sed non propter me, for me, but not for my sake. So there are three ways to destroy a society. First, by destroying its members. Second, by disintegration of the aim to achieve common ends through united action. Third, by destroying the instrument of authority that coordinates the common action. So let me summarize where we are at this point. Societies are unities of order, which cannot be reduced either to substantial unity nor to a unity of mere juxtaposition or aggregation. Societies are constituted not only according to having common ends, but also by a shared structure or an intrinsic common good. The word common is opposed to private, but it's not opposed to individual. Each member in a society shares the common good of order. But what is common cannot be cashed out or taken as a private share. One who leaves a club, a marriage, a church, or a polity cannot require the common good to be distributed to him or her. And this is precisely what marks the difference between a society and a partnership. For social unity of order, the parts are also wholes, individual persons, which retain their own proper operations. Social order does not happen merely by a spontaneous instinctual properties of the species. When I get out of bed in the morning, I have to make no choice about the matter. I'm still substantially a human being. But if I am to be a member of the society, I do have to make some choice about the matter. That is, I have to act in common with other members of the society. 
Now, Catholic social doctrine often repeats St. Thomas's famous dictum, quote, man is not ordained to the body politic according to all that he is and has, unquote. But this principle holds true of any society. Whatever the dignity of a society, it does not supplant, but rather presupposes the dignity of the individual person. The individual person's intentional act of judgment and knowledge is not reducible to society as an effect to a cause. At the same time, knowledge is eminently shareable and made common. For St. Thomas, society is not a thing. It's a communication. Precisely because every society consists of a diversity of members who retain their own proper operations, human persons can be members of plural societies. A key point. Every human being can be a member of more than one society. Husband and wife are members of a, of a municipality, of a nation, of a church. Their children are members of the family or members of the college or a team. Each of these memberships can be referred in turn to a wider society at both the level of the state and the international order. Human sociability is not exhausted in a single membership. And as you will learn in the fourth written lesson, the chief goal of social justice is the harmonizations of all of these different societies. So let me summarize this part of the lecture with a quotation from the Catechism of the Catholic Church. Quote, a society is a group of persons bound together organically by a principle of unity that goes beyond each one of them. As an assembly that is at once visible and spiritual, a society endures over time. It gathers up the past and prepares for the future. By means of society, each man is established as an heir and receives certain talents that enrich his own identity and whose fruits he must develop. He rightly owes loyalty to the communities of which he is a part and respect those in authority who have charge of the common good." Unquote. Catholic social teaching has traditionally marked three societies as the main components of an ordered multitude of social entities, marriage, polity, and church. In the first place, all three of these are deemed indispensable to human flourishing. Human beings simply cannot realize their potential for perfection without these three societies. In the second place, each of these has a form and a purpose that's not reducible to a free contract stipulated by its members. In the third place, in each case, the achievement of ends requires a social form. To put it very simply, the ends of marriage, polity, and church cannot be achieved, or rightly achieved, without a proper mode of union among its members. And this is what marks these three great societies of marriage, polity, and church, marks them off from what we usually call voluntary societies. Now, let's be careful. We are not dividing the voluntary from the involuntary as such. 
because every social unity of order requires voluntary actions. Rather, by voluntary and involuntary, we are trying to highlight the fact that some or even all of the ends of voluntary societies could be achieved without a social form constituting an intrinsic common good for its members. For example, relief for the victims of war, provision for the burial of the dead, recreational sports do not necessarily require a truly societal association. Yes, it's possible to bowl alone. So much the better, of course, when these ends are pursued in religious and in charitable congregations, teams, and so forth. Voluntary associations build up what sociologists call social capital, because the habits of membership make individuals even more socially skilled, and these skills can be transferred from one social membership to another. Even so, in the case of voluntary societies, the ends do not absolutely require a social form. And even when a social form is deemed desirable, agents are usually free to designate the form of their union. So what we are calling attention to right now is the pursuit of ends that absolutely require a social form. And as I said, the ends proper to marriage, polity, and church cannot be achieved simply on the basis of partnerships. In the natural order, the two great societies are marriage and polity. In the supernatural order, of course, the church. And the adjustment of these societies one to the other is a most delicate issue because in any ordinary society, these three must coexist. The problem, however, is deeper than finding just the right juridical instruments for organizing the proper scope of each society within itself and in relation to the other great societies. It also represents a social problem inasmuch as there is overlapping membership. Spouses and their children are members of the polity and of the church. But having emphasized the fact that there are three great societies by nature and supernature, we also need to esteem and to protect voluntary societies. In his famous encyclical, Rerum Novarum, published 1891, Pope Leo XIII defends the sanctity of the family and then quickly turns to a defense of the right of workers to form associations. And the following passage from Rerum Novarum touches the nerve of the issue. And I quote from Pope Leo, Private societies then, although they exist within the body politic and are severally part of the body politic, cannot nevertheless be absolutely and as such prohibited by public authority. For to enter into a society of this kind is the natural right of man. And the civitas has for its office to protect natural rights, not to destroy them. And if it forbid its citizens to form associations, it contradicts the very principle of its own existence. For both they and it exist in virtue of the like principle, namely, the natural tendency of man to live in society. There are occasions, doubtless, when it is fitting that the law should intervene to prevent certain associations. 
as when men join together for purposes which are evidently bad, unlawful, or dangerous to the common good. In such cases, public authority may justly forbid the formation of such associations and may dissolve them if they already exist. But every precaution should be taken not to violate the rights of individuals and not to impose unreasonable regulations under the pretense of public benefit. Rather, the state should watch over these societies of citizens banded together in accordance with their rights, but it should not thrust itself into their peculiar concerns and their organization, for things move and live by the spirit inspiring them, and they may be killed by the rough grasp of a hand from without." Unquote. Perhaps the most famous passage of Rerum Novarum. According to Pope Leo, such societies spring from the same source as the state, man's natural tendency to dwell in society. These societies do not devolve from the state or come into existence because of the state's need to outsource its own powers for useful ends. The key point is that whatever the difference that obtains between political union, ecclesial union, familial union, and the many kinds of voluntary unions about which Leo was speaking in that passage, they have something in common, the natural tendency of man to be social. True enough, there are qualitative differences between a state, a church, and a family in voluntary associations, but they spring from the same source, human sociability. It should be understand, understood that when Leo referred to private societies, he did not mean in liberal terms societies that are not part of the body politic. Instead, the word private means a contract status or an association to which the state is not an immediate partner. It comes from the older Roman law notion of lex privata. The state is not a member of the private association. But the private association is certainly in the state. Hence, the state's interest in exercising some regulatory powers, especially in matters criminal. None of these societies, private or public, exclusively instantiates the genus social. The state, for example, does not represent the genus social under which are arrayed the church and the family as species. But this also holds in the opposite direction. The state is not a species of the church's solidarity, although the state's unique order may be assisted and inspired by the church's union. These two great public societies, ecclesia and civitas, need to be in concord, each in its own order. And these two great public societies of state and church need to be in concord with yet other societies. In Rerum Novarum, Leo introduces another very important issue. He writes, in order that an association may be carried on with unity of purpose and harmony of action. Notice, I pause, that's the definition of a society, common end and common unity of action. I return to the quotation. Its administration and government should be firm and wise. All such societies, being free to exist, have the further right to adopt such rules and organization as may best conduce to the attainment of their respective objects." Unquote. So a society, 
marked by common ends and a unity of action, must have authority. Leo's point is that the state will do an injustice if it allows societies other than itself to exist, but denies their capacity for self-government. Where there is no right to group authority, common action will depend entirely on spontaneous unanimity. But this is hardly possible in a family, much less in an economic corporation, a university faculty, a church, or even a sports team. Hence, a state that recognizes the existence of civil society, but not the diverse modes of authority appropriate to these various societies, reduces society to mere partnerships. Why? As we already said, because mere partnerships do not need authority except when, in violation of contract, the partners have to litigate their disagreement in the courts of the political society. Now, at last, we can address the principle of subsidiarity. The term was coined by a 19th century Italian Jesuit, Luigi Taparelli. By the way, when Leo was 10 years old, his family sent him to study in Rome, and he studied under Taparelli. He was a Taparelli's gopher. You can imagine studying under one of the greatest Catholic philosophers of the 19th century at the age of 10 years old. But for Taparelli and the tradition of Catholic social doctrine, subsidiarity is not a freestanding concept. As a principle regulating and coordinating a plurality of societies, subsidiarity presupposes a plurality of groups, each having distinct common ends, distinct kinds of common action, and distinct kinds of authority. It is not a question, therefore, of whether there shall be a plurality of societies. It's not a question immediately of whether this plurality of societies is efficient or immediately useful to the state. In its negative formulation, subsidiarity demands that when assistance, subsidium, is given, that it be done in such a way that the sociality proper to the group, the family, the school, the corporation, is not subverted. Taparelli himself used the term impotatico, taken from the Greek word hypotaxis, the rules governing the order of clauses within a sentence. Rendered in Latin as subsedio, to sit beneath, subsidiarity invokes the concept not only of subordinate clauses in a sentence, but also of, of auxiliary troops in a Roman legion that sat below ready and duty-bound to render service. Now, if we put these two ideas together, we see a Janus-faced meaning of subsidiarity, the face of Janus, the gatekeeper, the god of gatekeepers in ancient Rome, whose face looks in two directions, like a swinging door. Looking in one direction, keying on this Latin word subsidium, or help, assistance, Subsidiarity implies a limit on distributive justice. Aid should be given to other societies, but not subversively. Looking in the other direction, to the words subsedio, it implies a complex social whole whose order requires each part to fulfill its own function. Like sentences with subordinate clauses or the units in an army, as you will see in our written lesson number four, it's this latter face of subsidiarity 
that's linked to social justice. So put, subsidiarity is the right of social groups, each enjoying its own proper mode of action. Therefore, it is a big mistake to think that subsidiarity requires judgments, decisions, or actions at the lowest level. The notion of a lowest level actually perverts the concept of subsidiarity. In fact, the popes typically use the word proper level. The term proper is taken from the Latin word proprium, denoting what belongs to or what is possessed by a thing or a person. Now, on certain exaggerated modern notions of the state, only two persons have propria, the state and then the natural individual person. And therefore, the lowest level can only mean the individual or maybe partnerships or spontaneous orders. Subsidiarity, on the other hand, presupposes that there are plural authorities and agents having their proper, not necessarily lowest, duties and rights with regard to a common good. Immediately, the common good of their own society, but by extension, the common good of the entire body politic. Pope Pius XII emphasized, I quote, every social activity is for its nature subsidiarity. It must serve as a support to the members of the social body, but never destroy or absorb them, unquote. So once again, here is a key principle. It links together the dignity of the individual, solidarity, and common good. Just as no society should ever destroy or absorb the individual person, so too no particular society should destroy the personhood and dignity of other societies. In his encyclical Centesimus Annus, Pope John Paul II weaves together these ideas. And here's a very nice quotation. The primary responsibility in social justice belongs not to the state, but to individuals and to the various groups and associations which make up society. In addition to the tasks of harmonizing and guiding development, in exceptional circumstances, the state can also exercise a substitute function. Such supplementary interventions, which are justified by urgent reasons touching upon the common good, must be as brief as possible so as to avoid removing permanently from society and business systems the gifts of service which are properly theirs. The Latin there is propria munera. The functions or the roles which belong to the various levels of society. I return to the quotation. Here again, the principle of subsidiarity must be respected. A community of a higher order should not interfere in the internal life of a community of a lower order depriving it of the functions which properly belong to it." Unquote. Notice, John Paul II speaks of higher and lower communities. He's not talking about highest and lowest levels or lowest levels. He's talking about communities as the main units of this. It helps to illuminate how solidarity and subsidiarity in Catholic thought stem from the same principle, though considered from diverse points of view. A given society possesses its own form of solidarity. 
a society is always the touchstone. Subsidiarity can apply within a given society insofar as the order can only be maintained by their own diversity of functions of its members. And thus, Pius XII says, every social activity is for its nature subsidiarity. Subsidiarity can also apply to a polity. Why? Because a polity consists of diverse societies, every one of these societies having its own function. Right? And this is why we say subsidiarity, in the way it's most often used, is a limit on the distributive justice of the state. Yes, the state must come to the assistance of, promote, support the diversity of societies within it, but never subvert the sociality of those societies. Okay. Recall our earlier point. A society ordinarily survives the defeat or failure of one or more of its purposes. It does not and cannot, however, sur survive the dissolution of its own union, of its own united action. The principle of subsidiarity is simply saying this, however you help a society, don't destroy its union, its internal common good. And this is why, once again, the principle of subsidiarity cannot be expressed adequately as the imperative that decisions be made at the lowest possible level. For those of you who are married and have children in your household, you will understand immediately why lowest possible level in a family union would be disaster. Subsidiarity, therefore, is nothing other than the principle that when aid is given, it respect the society being assisted. As John Paul II notes, in exceptional circumstances, the state could exercise a substitute function, but not in such a way as to remove the proper mode of the union. Any of us could come to the assistance of our brother or our sister's family. We could actually become, for a period of time, we could exercise a kind of substitute parental function in the case of an emergency but we must never supplant the authority of those children's real parents. Subsidiarity requires that society be preserved. And no argument to good results external to a society will suffice for dissolving a society unless one has a good moral reason to dissolve a society, a regime, or a party. In Mater et Magistra, Pope John XXIII, refers to the state's work as, quote, directing, stimulating, coordinating, and supplying and integrating a plurality of societies. Of its very nature, he concludes, the true aim of all social activity should be to help the members of the social body never destroy or absorb them. These diverse groups, he continues, quote, must be really autonomous and loyally collaborate in the pursuit of their own specific interests and those of the common good. For these groups must necessarily present the form and the nature of a true society." Unquote. This position goes straight back to Pope Leo and Rerum Novarum. So let me read another passage from Rerum Novarum, give you a sense of the continuity of the social magisterium on these matters. Now we're back to Leo. 
Quote, it must first of all be recognized that the condition of things inherent in human affairs must be borne with, for it is impossible to reduce civil society to one dead level. Socialists may uh, do their utmost to do so, but all striving against nature is in vain. There naturally exists among mankind manifold differences of the most important kind. People differ in capacity, skill, health, strength, and unequal fortune is a necessary result of unequal condition. Such unequality is far from being disadvantage, disadvantageous either to individuals or to the community. Social and public life can only be maintained by means of various kinds of capacity for business, the playing of many parts, and each man as a rule chooses the part which suits his own peculiar domestic condition." Unquote. Now in this passage, Pope Leo is not speaking of moral inequalities. Rather, he's calling our attention to a diversity of persons and functions within a social body. First, individual persons have different talents. And this diversity of talents perfect both the individual and the social body. And second, no society can exist without a plurality of functions. We all can't be bakers or we wouldn't have a society. What Leo is arguing against is one or another ideology of egalitarianism, of equality, that would cancel out diversity of talents and plurality of functions which are crucial both to individual and social life. So let's see if we can wrap this up. We've arrived at the coherence of the four basic principles of Catholic social doctrine laid out in the compendium. There are natural persons and group persons. In different ways, each is distinct in dignity, possessing rights and responsibilities. The human tendency to dwell in society, to use Pope Leo's words, cannot be exhausted by membership in a single group. It is not the accidental forces of society and history that alone account for the diversity of societies, but rather human nature itself. Solidarity is never a single thing, but a multitude of relations in different societies. On these facts, subsidiarity, therefore, can count as an authentic principle of social life. When one social power assists another, it should not subvert the solidarity of the group being assisted. These particular groups, in turn, need the virtue of ordering themselves into harmony with the others, and thus is brought into existence the common good called polity. So here, just by way of summary, Let's return to the Catechism of the Catholic Church. Numbers 1884 and 1885. 1884. God has not willed to reserve to himself all exercise of power. He entrusts to every creature the functions it is capable of performing according to the capacities of its nature. This mode of governance ought to be followed in social life. The way God acts in governing the world which bears witness to the great regard for human freedom, should inspire the wisdom of those who govern human communities. They should behave as ministers of divine providence. And now, 1885, the very next paragraph. The principle of subsidiarity is opposed to all forms of collectivism. 
It sets limits to state intervention. It aims at harmonizing the relationships between individuals and societies, and it tends to the establishment of a true international order." Unquote. So, you see, we have returned to this profound Catholic understanding of the different ways we imitate God. First, each of us is made unto the image of God, possessing the dignity of a rational substance, possessing our own talents and actions. Second, God wishes for us to achieve unity in multiplicity, in communion of persons, in societies. We bring back to God that excellence that moved God to say at the sixth day of creation, not just good, but very good. Finally, we should say that this idea of a communio personarum is very good, chiefly in the three societies instituted in different ways by God himself. First, in marriage family, we should never forget that of all the seven sacraments of the church, only marriage has a society as its natural sign. Second, in polity, which has as its purpose the vindication of justice in the temporal community. And ultimately, in the church as a corpus mysticum, it has its end in a supernatural beatitude as its head, the God-man Jesus Christ, and as its internal form, the Holy Spirit poured out into the hearts of its members bound together in charity. As I said before, these are the great societies. It's not to demean voluntary societies, but the Catholic Church has always taught that there is an order of priority, church, state, family. This is why Catholic social doctrine has always been most interested in anything that would directly attack, distort, or demote marriage and family, political order, or the church. There is an order of priority. There are also analogies between these societies, but not such a way as to remove the order of priority. I can give you no better recommendation for studying Catholic social thought than to begin with Pius XII's encyclical, Mystici Corporis, written in the middle of World War II, 1943. As Europe is in flames, well, half of the world is in flames, he decides to write an encyclical on the mystical body. And he begins with a general statement of what it means for any society to have a common good. And I quote Pius. In a natural body, the principle of unity unites the parts in such a manner that each lacks its own individual subsistence. On the contrary, in a mystical body, the mutual union, though intrinsic, links the members by a bond that leaves to each the complete enjoyment of his own personality. Moreover, if we examine the relations existing between the several members and the whole body, in every physical living body, all the different members are destined ultimately to the good of the whole alone. While if we look to its ultimate usefulness, every moral association of men, a true society, is in the end directed to the advancement of all in general and of each single member in particular, for everyone is a person." Unquote. I think it's very important that he was making this point in 1943 because he's dealing with the totalitarians, right? The communists and the fascists. 
trying to lay out a principle of what a true society is. A true society is not like a big substance that takes all of the individuals and makes them just accidents of the nation or of the race or of the state. But then Pope Pius turns to what is unique about the social structure of the Christian community. And I quote again. Hence, this word in its correct signification gives us to understand that the church, a perfect society of its kind, is not made up of merely moral and juridical elements and principles. It is far superior to all other human societies. It surpasses them as grace surpasses nature, as things immortal are above all those that perish. Such human societies, and in the first place, civil society, are by no means to be despised and belittled. But the church in its entirety is not found within this natural order, any more than the whole of man is encompassed within the organism of our mortal body. Although the juridical principles upon which the church rests and is established derive from the divine constitution given to it by Christ and contribute to the attainment of its supernatural end, nevertheless, that which lifts the society of Christians far above the entire natural order is the spirit of our Redeemer who penetrates and fills every part of the church's being and it's active within it until the end of time as the source of every grace and every gift and every miraculous power. Just as our composite moral body, mortal body, although it is a marvelous work of the Creator, falls short of the eminent dignity of our soul, so the social structure of the Christian community, though it proclaims the wisdom of its divine architect, still remains something inferior when compared to the spiritual gifts which give it beauty and life and to the divine source from which it flows." Unquote. The church is a true society. It not only has an end, which is God, but it has a mode of union, which is nothing other than the Trinity itself. Class, I say this is where to start. Begin reading Mystici Corporis, and you will see all of the concepts I've lectured uh, here uh, on here today. And uh, good reading, good luck with your lessons in bibliography. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed listening to Catholic Thinkers. Please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate to help us keep this content free.